This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. In 1934, Malcolm Cawley wrote a book called Exile's Return. In it, he described what was then called the Bohemian Movement. The Bohemians, he said, stood for the following ideas. Salvation by the child. Each of us born with special potentialities that are slowly crushed by society. The idea of self-expression with special potentials. The purpose of life is to express the full individuality of one's inner being. The idea of living for the moment. The idea of liberty. Every law and convention should be shattered. The idea of psychological adjustment. People are unhappy because they are repressed or maladjusted. The idea of changing place. Truth could be found if one got on the road and moved to someplace new or vital. The basic idea behind such bohemianism has for a century now been seen as a staple of health and happiness. Have a good idea of yourself. An idea of yourself is good. Realize that children need to be affirmed and that they get into problems basically because they're treated poorly and made to question their own worth. The slow but sure working out of the implications of this idea has led to an absolute revolution in many a child's experience. School awards have become an all-or-nothing affair. Some sports have trophies for everyone on the team. Some yearbooks have simply gone to having no traditional most likely to succeed features at all. After all, we're all most likely to succeed, aren't we? The propagation of I'm okay, you're okay has had its religious equivalents in the history of Christianity. More than one person has come along who's tried to refashion Christianity as something with less bad news in it. So Pelagius a famously pious monk in the 4th century, objected to the prevailing teaching of his day. He said that people are basically good, that God is benevolent, that Christ lived and died simply to set an example for us of how we should live, and that we all have power to live that way if we need to, or if we just choose to. Well, such teaching had the immediate power of simplifying a lot of things, making some questions vanish, and being a real prod to moral living. You know, you kind of you have nobody to blame but yourself. And many in history have followed Pelagius in his energizing call. People like the evangelist Charles Finney, 
who claimed to have been converted actually on this date, October the 10th, back around 1820. I don't know if he was converted, but that's the date he claimed to be converted on. Surely such teaching sounds better to many today than the bleak Augustinianism that teaches that people are sinful to their core. Perhaps you've heard of what's been called the two diagnostic questions used in evangelism. First, if you died tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? Second, if you stood before God and he asked you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you say? There are two basic approaches to answering this question. In the first, the answerer looks to himself and his own actions to give a defense to God for why he should be considered admissible. And the defenses can vary greatly. They may have to do with everything from chastity to charity, from keeping the commandments to shirking sins. Whatever they are, they're all defenses. They're all statements that say that looking into my own moral resources, I find the ability to give an account for myself to God. The other option with these two questions is to say that we have to have an answer that's entirely outside of ourselves. It finds nothing sufficiently good inside ourselves. Instead, it reposes all its hopes solely in what God has done in Christ. So whether it's bohemianism in the culture at large or Pelagianism in the churches, whether it is an overwhelming narcissism or simply a secularly respectable self-confidence, is the common wisdom that we are good enough right? Have we ended up believing what we see on TV, that God don't make no junk? We can interpret that as a Christian and know what it can mean that's true, but we also see how that can be twisted very easily. Are we all, or at least most of us, by virtue of our creation in the image of God and birth in an enlightened age, okay in some ultimate sense? Are we acceptable in God's eyes? When he weighs our entire lives, surely he'll find enough that's good so that our eternal retirement won't be too hampered, right? Well, that's the question. We explore in our final time together as we consider the biblical doctrine of conversion in one of its classic texts, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Please turn there with me if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this morning we thought in Acts chapter 11 how repentance is a gift of God. And now here we see in Ephesians 2, faith is the gift of God. In Mark 1, Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. We are called to repent. We are called to believe. We can only repent by the grace of God. It is his gift. We can only believe by the grace of God. It is his gift. Well, we'll look first at the death Paul writes about and then at the life. First, we see that Paul writes about a spiritual death. If you meditate on what he says here, it's really almost a a macabre portrayal of the living dead in these first three verses. Paul here in verse 1 of chapter 2 delivers God's verdict, and it is death. Look again at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. There's no sort of softly, softly approach to these young Christians that Paul's writing to. He turns from the great exalted benediction of chapter 1 to the putrid spiritual realities of chapter 2. And he says to them directly, you were dead. Paul writes elsewhere of the dead, meaning he says, though the physically dead, uh, he writes of in say, 1 Thessalonians 4, they are those out of Christ who had, has been raised, and believers too will one day be raised physically. But Paul's statement here could not be more clear. He's writing to those young Christians of their having been, not physically dead, but spiritually dead. In Romans chapter 5, Paul explains in more length that in Adam we all fell. In Adam we all died spiritually. Our traditional word explaining this is we become depraved. And how depraved? Totally depraved. Now, does that mean that we are all as bad as we could possibly be in every way? No, thank God it does not mean that. It's totally in the sense of every aspect of our being has been affected by the fall. So an accurate understanding of us means that we are alienated from God and every aspect of our being is. Jonathan Edwards was preaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when God's Spirit granted them the great awakening there in Northampton. In one of his sermons, he described the fall. The ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in his losing the nobler and more benevolent principles of his nature and falling wholly under the power and government of self-love. Before and as God created him, he was exalted and noble, and generous. But now, he is debased, and ignoble, and selfish. Immediately upon the fall, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. And as in other respects, so especially in this, before... His soul was under the government of that noble principle of divine love. 
whereby it was enlarged to the comprehension of all his fellow creatures and their welfare. And not only so, but it was not confined within such narrow limits as the bounds of the creation, but went forth in the exercise of holy love to the Creator, and abroad upon the infinite ocean of good, and was, as it were, swallowed up by it, and became one with it. But, so soon as he had transgressed against God, these noble principles were immediately lost, and all his excellent enlargedness of man's soul was gone, and thenceforward he himself shrank, as it were, into a little space, circumscribed and closely shut up within itself, to the exclusion of all things else. Sin, like some powerful astringent, contracted his soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness. And God was forsaken, and fellow creatures forsaken, and man retired within himself and became totally governed by narrow and selfish principles and feelings. Self-love became absolute master of his soul, and the more noble and spiritual principles of his being took wings and flew away. That's a powerful description of the spiritual death that we find ourselves in by nature. Ever since Adam, we have all been slaves of self, born rebels, cut off from God, turned inward upon ourselves and stupidly fulfilled, contented in our own selfishness, not really believing that there is any other kind of life. Now, Christians have talked about these things as the fall of Adam and Eve, resulting in the original sin with which we are all born and our total, complete depravity. Meaning not, again, that we are as bad as could be imagined, but that there is no area of our life that has been left untouched by rebellion against God. Look here again in chapter 2 and verse 1. Look at that word. Dead, he said. Spiritually dead. Now, is that being clearly preached from your pulpit? Does this seem like an unnecessarily pessimistic assessment? Friends, how many depressing tales could I tell all true just from this calendar year, 2017? All chilling to hear, even worse to consider, about what people, strangers, even friends, even parents do to others. You don't have to be in midlife crisis or reading some fringe existentialist to begin getting in touch with the idea that there is something badly wrong in our world bit more than we can pass off with simply, I guess nobody's perfect. Do you hear about the Las Vegas shootings and just decide, well, I guess nobody's perfect? It's a grotesque thing that that man did. Christian, do pay careful attention to this radical statement. Don't try to dress things up at all. It says, dead. We might have preferred, you were all spiritually disadvantaged. You were all spiritually challenged or differently abled or sick. But what Paul says here is dead. It's a radical image. And it's an image that we should not shy away from or back off of. 
It is the true diagnosis that people need to hear. Paul explores it more here in these first three verses of chapter 2. Paul considers the nature of this death. This death is, is a strange one. It's a death marked by such activity. I mean, look down through these verses and note the words that are used. And bring the images to your mind. This death described here is a going where you should not go. It's a doing what you should not do. It's a serving whom you should not serve. A following whom you should not follow. Forfeiting what you should not forfeit. Obeying what you should not obey. Gratifying what you should not gratify. Craving what you should not crave. Desiring what you should not desire. Thinking what you should not think. Taken together, it's quite a comprehensive presentation of death. Dead, we read, in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's a way to describe the devil. The spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. This death is marked by disobedience and not to the devil or even to ourselves, but disobedience to God. We are by nature attentive to so many things, from the ambitions of our hearts to the rumblings of our stomachs, but not to God. No, by nature, to God, the one true God, there is nothing natively in us that seems beyond polite interest when it comes to God. Further than that, we find only loud and echoing apathy to any call to sacrifice ourselves in the service of another. Now this is a spiritual death toward God, death toward the desires and thoughts that he would call us to have. This death is a being lost in striving to, as Paul says in verse 3, gratify the cravings of our flesh and to follow its desires and thoughts. As the old Bob Dylan song says, you got to serve somebody. Luther said, man is a donkey ridden by either God or the devil. We will, it seems, by nature, be disciples. It doesn't matter how powerful our job or persuasive our own personalities or how careful our planning or loving our parents. We will be disciples and followers and servants either of God or anything or anyone other than God. Jesus said it in John 8, 34. He said that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. So we read here in Ephesians 2, by nature this death is being left alone, being bound to serve sin. Well presented, isn't it a kind of spiritual rot and inert decay? A death. Certainly as Christians we know that people are made in God's image. But the Bible does not teach that this depravity negates God's image in us. Everyone, Christian or non, is made in God's image. God is the creator of us all. But our rebellion against God has taken the glory of God from us. It has gutted the image of God in us. So a BMW run off the road, fall into the bottom of a cliff, 
may be entirely unusable and completely mangled, not much more than a huge heap of, of steel and leather, but it's still a BMW. Friends, that's a picture of spiritual death. Now, surely you're not entirely unsympathetic to this picture. I lived in England for six and a half years, and I had an American friend from New York who was not himself a Christian, but who was very interested in studying the New Testament. He was bright, he was a voracious reader, and as we talked, he seemed very sensitive spiritually. He would have characterized himself, I think, as a person who was Jewish, secular, but interested in spiritual things. So what did I decide to study with him? The book of Romans. And I remember talking with him, his name was David, about Romans. And in the middle of a discussion of the picture of depravity that's presented there in Romans 1 to 3, I asked my friend David if he had not realized that he had the same heart in him as Hitler had had. Now I admit that was a risky question to ask. But I knew that David had been deeply engaged with what he'd been reading in Romans. And after a pause, a bit to my surprise, David said he did realize that he had the same heart in him. Perhaps some of you sitting here this afternoon sense the deadness of your own heart. Your heart to God. And if you don't, just think for a moment. When's the last time you did something that you knew that God wanted you to do rather than what you wanted to do? Have you seen a consistent, growing pattern of this? Christian friend, you realize something of the power of sin's hold on your heart, don't you? The the struggles you've known ever since becoming a Christian show the reluctance with which the evil one relinquishes one of his own. Of course, some Christians with the best of intentions are made quite uncomfortable by having such a dire presentation of the human condition. They find such verbal running down of the human race unhelpful, even counterproductive. And so they try to alter the message of the human race. They try to make it more palatable. But friends, we have to be aware of any counsel to change the Bible's message. The palate of a spiritual corpse should not determine the taste of the spiritual meals that we serve. We do not try to calibrate our Christian gatherings to what our non-Christian friends will like. Before we go on to the second half of the passage, we should note the extent of this death. Look there in verses 2 and 3. The point is simple and it's very important. This death affects us all. You see there in the first couple of verses, Paul says that you were dead in your sins and transgressions. But then in verse 3, Paul includes himself. He says, verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. And then at the end of verse 3, Paul seems to sweep around to include anyone left out like the rest, he says. The Bible teaches that this dire spiritual state is true universally. It is not limited to one time or place, to people of one ethnic or religious heritage. If you want to find a truly inclusive doctrine in the Bible, this is it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe it comes as a surprise to you it's in the Bible, but it is. From the Old Testament to the New, from Moses to Isaiah, from the Lord Jesus himself to the Apostle Paul, the Bible is clear that even the people you know that are comparatively good are really good only 
in the most attenuated sense, only comparatively to other people, other sinners. The idea of ultimately good people is as empty a set as is hot ice or dark light. Now, if that surprised you, perhaps that would be a good thing for you to talk with your Christian friends about this week. Try to make sure you understand this and what the Bible teaches about it. And Christian, if this radical picture is true, this should bring about in our heart a pressing, humble, outgoing compassion for our friends and family. Indeed, for all those made in God's image. I pray that one result of us staring at this doctrine of conversion for three sessions together now is that God will grow in our hearts a godly compassion for all those who are made in his image So that we're not deceived by someone's outward satisfaction or apparent success, but knowing what God says here in his word, that people are dead in their sins and transgressions, and that we will have compassion upon them. Because did you notice here the end of this death? It's right there in verse 3. The end that is the outcome toward which our spiritual death is tending is God's wrath. That's what he means when he writes that like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now the NIV has chosen to render this here as objects, the word that's usually translated children. Uh, Thus the older translations here will have this as children of wrath. We are those who by nature completely appropriately tending to are given over to God's wrath. In verse 2 we see that disobedience to God characterizes the spiritually dead. Later in Ephesians 5, Paul writes about the disobedient deserving God's wrath. One Gallup poll I read suggested that half of Americans are fearful of being unforgiven by God or cut off from God's love when they die. Now those kinds of fears may stem from false reasons, but some of them may be true enough. In writing of God's wrath here, Paul is talking about God's rightful wrath. This is not a divine peak, an arbitrary malice, some capricious cruelty. This wrath is completely in line with the righteousness of God's character, with his commitment to the good, the true, the right. That's why you don't find the scripture sheepish about mentioning God's wrath, like we sometimes are today. Scripture presents God as patient, God as merciful, God as calling for our repentance but never as finally reluctant to judge those who are more committed to their sins than they are to him. Remember that. Friends, that's why you have to be prepared to give an account for the life that you've lived and the heart that you've had. And that's why, Christian, you should realize the urgency of the task ahead of you in telling people about the seriousness of their sins and the awfulness of their end if they will not divorce themselves from their sins and their disobedience to God. Again, I pray that God will make us compassionate to those ensnared in sin. I pray that he will make us quick to reach out in love and prayerful for those who have not yet repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. And two, I pray that we may finally be jealous for God and for his honor. May God give us hearts full of compassion for God, for his rightful claims upon us. How many people today are quick to accuse and charge God and to excuse us in our sins? I pray that our compassion 
for sinners never leads us to doubt the rightness of God's justice. Now we should turn to the new life that we find in the second part of the passage, verses 4 to 10. And we see here the gift that God has given, and it's nothing less than new life. Look at verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for his God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So if the image that dominates the first half of this chapter, or this passage is a radical one, death, the image that dominates these verses is no less radical, it's life. Now earlier in chapter 1, we can read about God's election of us, his choice of us, the Son's atonement for us on the cross. Now here in this passage, in chapter 2, we see the saving work of God's Spirit as He comes to the hearts of those whom the Father has elected and the Son has atoned for, and now the Spirit quickens them. He gives life. You see how every person of the Trinity is involved in conversion, is involved in our salvation. Do you know the word for this life-giving work of God's Spirit? It's regeneration. To generate is to make or give birth. And then to regenerate is to give birth to or to make again or anew. That's exactly what God's Spirit has done with Christians. It's what we read earlier today that Jesus talked to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. I remember once being in a Christian bookstore that had a large sign reading Christian Living. And then underneath it, almost every, maybe every shelf, had a little label reading self-help. Friends, if there is any place you should not find this gospel of Christianity, it is in the self-help section. If you're a Christian here this afternoon, I hope you understand this. Don't underestimate what has happened in your life. Just because you may not have had a dramatic emotional turning point, don't therefore imagine that a dramatic change has not taken place in your soul. Because if you're a Christian, it has. Friend, according to the Bible, if you are a Christian, at some point in your life, the Spirit of God spoke to you when you were spiritually dead, and when you were spiritually dead in your heart, and he spoke to you as fully and life-givingly as Jesus spoke to Lazarus in the tomb and said, Come forth. He did that to you. Friend, don't fail to realize the tremendous thing that God has done for you, the change he has wrought by bringing your poor soul from death to life. And friend, if this is so, and if you've known it in your own life, well then can anyone really be beyond hope? In our churches, do we find ourselves often enough welcoming and even seeking those who seem furthest off from God, most opposed to him and his ways. While there is life, there is hope. The more radically we understand conversion, the more hope we can have as we look at the most desperate cases we know. If God has not finally summoned someone to appear before him, who are we then, knowing what our own hearts are like, When we came to Christ, who are we to assume that God may not yet honor his word preached to them, his love shared, his gospel news explained to some rebel against him? Let us major on holding out hope to those who think they have none. 
pray for God to show us how to do this. Teach this doctrine of conversion clearly in your own pulpits in order to encourage this kind of radical evangelism to the most obviously lost in our communities. Look at the nature of this life that we Christians have. There are two basic images used of it in this passage. Salvation from our sins and union with Christ. So salvation, we have been saved. Twice Paul says this here in in verses 5 and verse 8. You have been saved. Saved from what? Well, from what we were just thinking of a few moments ago. From God's rightful judgment on our sins. We have been liberated both from our bondage to our sins and from the punishment that we've deserved for them. And we've been freed by Christ's redemption of us. He has atoned for us. He has borne our punishment. He has paid our penalty. He has bought us forgiveness for our sins and restored fellowship with God. And notice how God has done all this by uniting us with Christ. Here in verses 5 and 6, and then again in verse 10, we do see the truth that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Down at the end of our passage, verse 10, we see that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Look there in chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us in advance for us to do. What a picture this conjures up of God making us again, us being works of God. It presents our being recreated in Christ Jesus. And this fits with the phrase we see there in verse 5. Do you see the phrase in verse 5? God made us alive with Christ. The life that we have now we have because God has included us in Christ. He has become our head. His word has become our will. His spirit indwells us. And so he goes on in verse 6 and says that God has raised us up with Christ. Look at verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ. And that is seated us with Christ. Seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So our new life, our new position, all we have, we have only in him. So you see the salvation there is in Christ, the, the new life. As Christians, we've been born again or anew. Augustine described it as a great change from having been curved in on ourselves to being turned outward to God and others. He said that God replaces our heart's love of self with love of God. The initial selfishness that Edward so eloquently described in that passage I read earlier returns. We once again can truly love beyond the narrow confines of our own shrinking self. Friends, that change is conversion. Friend, if you're here as a Christian, you know the truth of what I'm saying. There is no hope in our own virtue. All our hope is only in Christ's virtue. He has given us what we could never give ourselves. He does what would otherwise be impossible. So he has given us a new past. For the Christian, our old past is gone forever. If you knew yourself to be a sinner here this afternoon, what hope there is in that, that our old past is gone forever nailed to the cross, taken away as far as from the east is from the west. It is Christ 
who gives us this new life. You see what this should mean for us in our churches. Friends, our churches should display life which is utterly inexplicable apart from knowing Christ. The kind of of carefulness, of joy, of service, of concern, of sacrifice, of giving, of friendliness that we should have should be explicable only in terms of God's work in us. Now, how can all this be? What are the reasons for this life? Well, he gives us a number of answers here in these verses. The first answer we have to see to the question is, of how, is that it is not by our works. Look at verses 9 and 10. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The whole question of how our works relates to our salvation has often confused people, but the answer here could hardly be clearer. One of God's purposes in saving us is that it is seen to be His work. He is the Savior. He wants no ground for our boasting and ourselves. In one sense, you could say the whole of the Old Testament history was 1,500 years of God proving to his people they could not save themselves, that their only hope was him. You know, just pick a book in the Old Testament, and that's its point. Whether it's the Exodus with God showing that Egypt could not be defeated by them, he had to do that, all the way to Isaiah showing the Assyrians could not be defeated by the Egyptians or by any other ally or even by themselves, so their only hope is the Lord. Or as Jonah found out in the belly of the whale or the fish in Jonah 2, 9, salvation is of the Lord. That's what every book in the Old Testament is there to show us, and we see it clearest, clearest of all in the work of Christ. God wants no ground for our boasting in ourselves, The truth is we cannot save ourselves, and he wants us to realize that. Our salvation comes, as he says here in verse 9, not by anything we do. It is not by our works. Indeed, we are God's work. We read here, verse 10 makes it clear that good works are involved, but they are the goal of our salvation, not its ground. They are the result, not its reason. We haven't caused our salvation by our works. We only show it by them. Our works cause our salvation as much as our seeing the sunrise this morning caused it to rise. No, these verses make it clear that we are saved in part to do good works, but that we are not saved by our good works. How then were we saved? By God's grace through faith. Look at verse 5. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, It is by grace you have been saved. Again, down in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Friends, could Paul have been any clearer here? God gives salvation freely as a gift. We do not earn it as a wage. All we earn as wages, says Paul in Romans 6, is the wages of sin. That's death. If salvation comes to us, it must be, as we see here, by grace. Not through our works, but through faith and trust in God's work in Christ. Now, I trust this is clear. Uh, I really want this point to be clear. This is what this passage in Ephesians 2 is all about. 
we did not gain salvation because we deserved it or because we desired it or because we did it ourselves. We have salvation simply and solely as a gift of God's grace. How mistaken then some people are to feel that true religion is composed of sort of brass memorial plaques put up in their church buildings or a a building or a hall named in somebody's honor. Friends, gifts of money or life-serving, a lifetime service may show true godliness, but they will never make true godliness. True religion is not a monument to the religious, but rather to the God we worship. Salvation is a gift, and our life is to be our response to that gift. So if you're a Christian here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are no grounds for boasting of our salvation. And God has made this clear. Just as Christ's first coming was all of God's doing. It wasn't planned or purposed by men. It didn't rely on humans' joyful reception or careful cooperation. It was all of God's sovereign and surprising will. So today, our own salvation comes by God's work alone. There is no ground of boasting for us. Indeed, God has saved us as he has by the Father's electing and the Son's atoning and the Spirit's regenerating exactly so that we will not boast of our own work, but of his work. It's kind of like what we see in Exodus about God's picking Egypt to deal with, or in Ezra and Nehemiah where we see God letting his people go into the Babylonian captivity only to save them again. God saves us so that we will know we are saved by his grace. So let's pray that God exalts his grace among us in our churches. Let's pray that this doctrine of conversion will be clear and will be clearly taught. Let's pray that God make us zealous for him and for his actions and that our own lives will clearly reflect this in the gracious way we have of relating to one another and to others. Friends, if God has dealt with us, can we really deal any differently with others? If he has been so kind and so gracious with us? And why? Why has God saved us? Why has he regenerated us by his grace? For his own glory. That's the answer we get here. Now we get more than that. We see too that God has saved us because of his love for us. We see in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God has done what he's done. There is in God a well of love, it seems, which is completely inexplicable to us. A love like God's love, which comprehends and includes mercy, is much more mysterious than his justice. But finally, it seems that God desires to display his mercy and grace. Matthew Henry had a helpful statement on understanding both God's love and his mercy mentioned here. He said, love is his inclination to do us good, considered simply as creatures. Mercy respects us as apostate and miserable creatures. So in that sense, before the fall, God's love could come to us unmixed with mercy. There was no need for mercy. He needn't forgive our simple limitations. Limitations aren't something to be forgiven. But after sin had entered the picture, after we had rebelled against him, then if we would ever know God again, he would have to be, as Paul says in verse 4, a God who is rich in mercy. And this is who God is in himself. He is rich in mercy. He 
abounds in mercy. He has an overflowingly merciful heart. And he has shown his mercy. And he has shown his mercy as he has, he says in verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So even as God made a display of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, and as he was displaying his mercy in Paul's salvation, he makes apostles as a sign. He holds up emperors as a display. He is God. So God willed to display his grace, to show his kindness, incomparable richness was expressed in Christ, deep wells of love. No one else could love like this. No one else was in such a position to display such mercy as God was. And no one was in such a state to need it as those who were made in God's image but who had rebelled against him. Friends, this is why we want to be so clear in our church life together on God's grace in every turn. When you interview somebody for membership, you want to be clear on God's grace, on our depravity and the meaning of the gospel. You want to be clear with prospective members when you share the gospel. You want to be clear when you share your own personal testimony. You want to make it clear that you were dead in your sins, that your only hope is in Christ's cross and God's grace, that there is no self-salvation preached at your church. You want to be clear on grace. It's so natural to us in our fallen state to think we can save ourselves. We have to work extra hard as preachers to show that no one can save themselves. Well, this is something of the new life we need and of the new life God has so mercifully given to us in Christ. Uh, Mark was mentioning to me that we first met uh, at the Founders Conference like back in 1999 when John Piper was speaking there. And I remember that time well. I, I, was, I convinced John to come and convinced founders to invite him and got in some trouble on both sides as a result of several things that happened that week. But I, I won't forget seven questions that he asked the assembled host. And they were wonderful questions. Number one, who is the most God-centered person in the universe? God. I think you and Jason were at that Founders Conference and you gave your testimonies. Or you, yeah, Ryan was a one-year-old Christian then. Two, who is the person uppermost in God's affections? God. Number three, is God an idolater? He is not. Number four, what is the energy from which all creation springs and to which all creation aims? The energy of worship in the Godhead as the Father and the Son delight in each other's perfections through the Holy Spirit. Number five, what is God's chief jealousy? It is to be known, admired, trusted, enjoyed, obeyed above all creatures in the universe. Number six, what is the chief end of God? To glorify God and enjoy himself forever. His righteousness consists in being committed to that fact. The righteousness of God is being committed to God above man. And number seven, do you feel loved by God because he makes much of you? 
Once again, read every prosperity preacher you're tempted to read. Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, there they all are. Do you feel loved by God because he makes much of you or because he frees you to enjoy making much of him forever? And then John went on to say, when will you be a free and dangerous being? When our deepest joy becomes a sharing in God's joy in God, we will be delivered from bondage to self because you will be ravished by God. Friends, the key to this is Ephesians chapter 2. As we step back and reflect on it, we see that God does have a love for himself supremely. And God specially loves those that he has made in his image. I don't know how that sounds to you this afternoon, but that's how it is that the scriptures can unblushingly mention God's desire to display himself. He is our glorious creator. He is our rightful Lord. He is our certain judge. And he has shown himself to be our merciful savior. This is a reality. And what a wonderful reality it is. It's appropriate that God desires to so glorify himself. And that's why he did the incarnation like he did. Choosing to begin things with a young unmarried woman and revealing the child first by using a barren woman to be the mother of John the Baptist. The Lord likes to make it clear that he is the one who is working in a situation. Though we should always be working for the edification of the church and the good of each other, let us never turn our churches into a series of self-help programs, offering a series of small hopes through life's great difficulties. Our hope is a great hope, and it is in Christ. Let us strive to be God-centered in our singing and in our praying and in our hoping and in our acting and in our living and in our dying. God is good, and he has acted towards us in great grace, giving us forgiveness of our sins and new life in Christ. And this is much to his glory. And so he calls us to make his goodness in Christ known. This is God's will. So friend, have you turned from your own ways to trusting yourself to this God and trusting him? Friends, there's no one else like him. The most important thing about the doctrine of conversion is to know truthfully and accurately that God has converted you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that you would teach us the truth about our need for you and about the richness of your supply in Jesus. Help us to be clear in our teaching and preaching of this to our own hearts and in our churches. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.